0: It's probably one of the least understood countries in the world and one of the most fascinating lands I've ever visited. Hi, I'm Rick Steves, recently back from Iran, and I'd like to share with you some of my first impressions. I flew to Tehran to film a special about Iran that we're producing for public television. Considering the tensions between our two nations, I figure it's time we Americans get acquainted with Iran and its perplexing culture. Joining us today on Travel with Rick Steves is Abdi Sami, He's an Iranian-American filmmaker who grew up in Iran, now lives and works here in the USA, and goes back and forth frequently. Abdi proved to be indispensable in helping my crew and me navigate the official landscape that journalists need to deal with in Iran. Ancient Persepolis and the city of Esfahan are marvelous, but the best part of Iran is simply getting a glimpse at how everyday people live and how they respond to their fundamentalist religious government. Come along as we compare notes on Iran. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is made possible in part by American Airlines. Their Advantage program can help you earn miles toward your next vacation. Details are at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly. In spring of 2008, it occurred to me I know almost nothing about Iran. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I want to tell you what I learned about Iran and how much fun I had going there to produce a public television show that we brought home to help America better understand Iran. I'm joined by a friend who's an Iranian-American who accompanied us. And uh, I don't think we could have done it without the help of Abdi Sami. Abdi, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. What an adventure I had. What a learning experience I had. I just wish every American could have been with us as we were in Iran for 10 or 12 days putting this TV show together. And i got to say, you grew up in Iran. You've spent most of your adult life here in the United States. You're a photographer, a filmmaker. Yes. And you jumped at the opportunity to work with our public television film crew and help us show your country to America. Yes. Why?
1: I love what you do. I love the fact that you connect people and help people to travel to other countries. And going to Iran uh, is a very unique opportunity that not that many people have. And the idea of being a conduit to create a travel show that would put a human face on Iran to the American audience outside of politics was very exciting to me.
0: You're an Iranian-American. Right. Your, your parents raised you in a country that is part of the axis of evil. What's it like to be an Iranian-American here in the United States?
1: Is it an issue? For me, it hasn't been an issue, no. For me, it's never been an issue. I've traveled in and out of the country a lot. It's never been an issue, but for a lot of people, it has what been. What saddens you about it, if anything? Well, what saddens me is the sense of alienation that tag creates for so many people from Iran and for other countries. You're basically creating an extreme amount of tension and hostility among 70 million people in another country when you tag them as part of Axis of Evil. And this is a nation that's very much pro-West, that loves America. So
0: the 70 million people in Iran are inclined to be pro-West,
1: most of them are. Yes. I guess you can't say the seventy million, yeah. but
0: a great part of the society yes. wants to look Western, like like Turkey, like neighboring countries do. Yes, absolutely. Huh. Now you're part of an interesting situation all over the developing world. There's lots of talented people that end up in the United States as creative and professional and and uh, effective, productive people. Does Iran have a brain drain problem
1: to the West? I think Iran has, and he's had an ongoing brain drain, and that is really sad.
0: Do you do you think much about? how your life would be if you stayed in Iran?
1: You know, I don't dwell on that much, and I really wouldn't know how it would have been unless I'd stayed there. (laughs) Uh, But I'm happy to be here.
0: Now, when we think about Iran today, it occurs to me, the people of Iran, they've got a revolution. It's called a values revolution. It's a family values revolution on their Muslim value, parenting values terms. They call it family values. I think they've traded off democracy to have a theocracy so they can raise their kids in a world that is the way they want their kids to grow up. Uh, What's your take on that?
1: Well, it depends on... We all live in our own bubbles, in our own societies. When I go back to Iran, I live within the bubble of my friends, my family. So always when I want to generalize and talk about Iran and the population, how people feel, I try to think of how large my bubble is and do I really have a perspective to say 50% or half the people. So it's very hard to answer some of those questions and to be speaking for a large portion of the population. When I go back to Iran, they ask me to generalize and talk about the U.S. and I'm like, what do you want to know about Arkansas, L.A., Manhattan, Seattle, if there's Dallas? Bit, yeah. You know, how do I represent all of the above?
0: When an Iranian sees you back in your, the country of your parents and where you were raised, what do they think about when they see an Iranian who's living really quite a beautiful life in America and comes back to visit family? Do they, do they resent you not being in their country? Are they excited for you? Are they curious?
1: You know, I think it all depends on the attitude of the person who lives here and goes back and how he deals with the issues there and with the family and so forth. I'm very fortunate that when I go back, I'm welcomed and I feel very comfortable and I feel like everybody around me feels very comfortable and they're very supporting.
0: You walk down the street in Iran, as you do almost every year, I think, and people know that, I mean, you could just be an Iranian. As soon as they find out you're an American-Iranian, do you ever get negative feedback from these people? Do they, are they ever angry with you?
1: No, no. Never? No, no, never, almost. They almost treat me the same way as they treat you when they find out that I'm visiting from the U.S. and I live here. Uh, they actually treat me as if I was part American and are very friendly.
0: As I talked to you in this interview, Abdi, you've got family in Iran. You want to go to Iran in the future. Uh, a lot of people think Iran's bugging everything and they've got their security people out there. We were there for a couple of weeks. Do you think the hotel rooms were
1: bugged? Well, uh, we were staying at the Hilton on the 15th floor, and that's where Hugo Chavez stays. And the suite next to me was where a minister was staying. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that is the floor. If there was any floor that was bugged, it was probably ours. So they put us on the 15th floor. They put us on the top floor, The last, when we came back.
0: Now, when we were there, we had the same minder that Ted Koppel had when he was there.
1: Yes. And I really have no idea whether they're bugged or not. My assumption always is assume someone is listening to you and be careful.
0: You come from a world where that's probably a smart assumption. Yes. yes. Our minder was laughing because he thought we were giving the Iranian government too much credibility to be sophisticated in its snooping—that they would be following us and That's taking right. us. And all the sort he of also
1: things. took good pictures.
0: <laughs> so they spend a lot of energy keeping track of foreigners when they're running around the country.
1: I think mostly Americans and mostly press.
0: Can I go to Iran if I have an Israeli stamp in my passport? No. No, okay. I was just reading the visa application forms again, and uh, I noticed you can go to Iran, but you can't just go there and travel like I would around France or something. You've either got to have a family or business sponsor you, Mm -hmm. or you've got to take a tour. Mm-hmm. to guide you around. Right. Is that your understanding? If you're an American. If you're an American.
1: If you're European, then I saw a lot of Europeans on their own, young teenagers. Uh, that's the deal. With backpacks in Isfahan who told me they were going to take the bus and go visit a friend. So you know.
0: a Turkish traveler, a Pakistani traveler, Indian, Russian, they'd be able to travel freely. Correct. When I got there with my New Zealand producer, they took us right into the V.I.C. VI room, very important commercial what was the right? The, is the it was CIP, Commercially Important Visitor, right. the CIP room? They said, uh, producer, you're from New Zealand. Welcome. American host, you're from America. Come with us. And I had a police escort over to the fingerprinting zone, and I got fingerprinted. And I, I really had a feeling that that was just tit for tat. We fingerprint people when they come into our country. So as a matter of national pride, right, more than practical need.
1: That's how it got started. Is after that you we think? Do you think it's it a matter US? of tit for tat, just yes. saving face?
0: Yes. Because they get pushed around a lot in this rough and tumble world, and uh, right. if they got a chance to humiliate an American and fingerprint them, they're going to do it. Yeah. Because their people are fingerprinted if they're allowed into America.
1: I almost asked them not to fingerprint you, but then I thought, well, it's good to go through the experience. <laughs> also, in
0: the on the uh, visa form, it said uh, girls over nine will be expected to respect the Islamic dress code. Correct. Girls under nine can dress like Britney Spears. Uh, not quite. <laughs> <laughs> but but tourists or locals doesn't matter. If you're going to Iran, you're part of that scene, and and you need to. Res- it's interesting because I thought you know I've gone to other countries where they don't drink, but tourists can drink. You know, where they don't smoke, and tourists can smoke. There's right. a different thing for tourists at the in their fancy little oasis of the West. Right. But in Iran, there was no oasis of the West. I could go to the fanciest bar in town and not get a beer. That's correct. I could get a malt beverage. That's correct. Tell me about these malt beverages.
1: Well, I guess they're a psychological substitute for those who like <laughs> really, to drink I beer. I noticed the,
0: the, the, the Iranian equivalent of the Budweiser man or something like yeah. that. He'd always have a can of malt beverage in his hand, and it was like, yeah, I want a beer. And there, there was not a hint of alcohol in it, but it looked like a beer. It tasted like a beer. It said malt beverage with the same kind of macho advertising on it. And I just thought it is a psychological substitute. It really is. That's how I feel. But then also, because, you know, this is a revolution of uh, values, and, and they don't want alcohol in their society. Right. Uh, they don't want drugs in their society. They don't want women to be disrespected in their society. And it, it's a top-down, sort of a dictated morality. But the irony is we, we have so much antagonism between our societies, but what's driving them is the same thing that's driving the right wing in our country, is this fear that our children will grow up with the bad influences. So they will
1: legislate this morality. Right. That gives them control. But what did the prohibition did in the U.S. for?
0: (laughs) But that doesn't seem to be happening in in Iran. I I went through there, and I I found a lot of uh, conformity. We were at the university, and that was one of the most discouraging times of the whole visit. Went to the university. I thought I would find uh, kids being nonconformist and organizing and demonstrating and they were all just little birds with clipped wings doing it exactly like their hand-chosen professors that got their jobs because they agreed with the system and were put in that spot. It is all conformity. Was that your take on that?
1: I, yeah, well, for me, walking through the campus of the University of Tehran was really sad. I just felt like there was no energy and everybody was so subdued. And since this was the first time I'd gone on the campus in a long time, I hope that uh, it's not like that all the time or always, but uh, I'm afraid it is. Tell me more about
0: your feelings as we went through the university halls there trying to talk to kids and so on.
1: I think that was new for you, too. Yes, it was new for me, too. I had not been on the campus of the University of Tehran in many, many years, and I was surprised how subdued everybody was and how it lacked energy. I was looking for some excitement, uh, an opportunity to talk to students and ask questions, and uh, we didn't really seem to get the chance to do that. To what do you attribute that? I think some of that is just how the atmosphere is. I think some of that may have to do with the fact that they see us as press filmmakers. Because when you see a big camera, when you see a big camera in Iran, you're up a little bit. And they see that we have a guide, a government guide with us, Ah. I think it's all intimidating to them. And people shy away from cameras often. But beside that, the energy on the campus was very, very strong Yeah, well
0: I think people young people look to professors for inspiration and leadership, and the professors that we saw, and I assume this is the way it is, were, were people that kissed up to the government and towed the party line.
1: I think you have to conform to be to able to job. survive in that yeah environment. <laughs> We'll talk more
0: about our impressions of the students at the big university in Tehran in a moment. And we'll learn how Iranians keep their vices private, the role of women in Iranian society, how Iranians viewed the Ayatollah Khomeini, and what's behind those Death to Israel and Death to America posters we saw all over town. Abdi Sami is my guest today on Travel with Rick Steves. We're sharing our impressions from our recent filmmaking trip to Iran. I spent two weeks there in March to gather material for a public television special that'll air later this winter. Knowing I'd be given a government-assigned minder, I invited Abdi to interpret for me when it came to cross-cultural communication and to be someone I could trust to help me with whatever situations me and my small film crew would encounter. We'll take your calls for Abdi at 877-333-7425 or by email. We're at radio at ricksteves.com. Travel with Rick Steves is made possible in part by American Airlines. New vacation options in Latin America, plus getaways in the U.S., Europe, and the Caribbean are at aavacations.com. American Airlines knows why you fly. It's First Impressions of Iran, today on Travel with Rick Steves. We'll take your calls for Abdi Sami in a moment at 877-333-RICK. Abdi was born and raised in Iran, and he's lived in the United States for many years now. He works as a filmmaker and creative consultant, and he accompanied me recently on a filmmaking trip to meet the people and explore the culture of Iran. So when you look at the surface, there's no alcohol, girls are covered up, uh, professors are very conservative. Still, everybody told me, yes, but when you're behind the scenes, you can get whatever you want. There's drugs, there's sex, there's booze, you name it.
1: Uh, Yeah, the part of Iran you didn't see, there are two lives in Iran, the private life and the public life. The public life is one in which people go out on the street and women put their scarf on. And people don't really joke and laugh. They're not very loud in public. They're very reserved. And so the public mood that you see on the outside is very subdued. And when you go inside people's homes, that changes a lot. I've been to friends, family, relatives, people who I've met for the first time when I've gone back to Iran and they've invited me to their homes. And it's just a different atmosphere. In Iran, it's banned to have satellite dishes, and when you go up on a high rise and you look down, you'll see hundreds and hundreds of them.
0: They're banned, uh, but people they're, still they're have banned. them? They're
1: banned. Yeah, everybody has them. You go to everybody's so the house, government, you to visit. the
0: government realizes it can't keep everything down. It's sort of a don't ask, don't tell sort of thing?
1: It's sort of, yes.
0: Because, I mean, you know, you can be gay in the military here, just don't ask, don't tell. You yeah. can smoke and drink in Iran, just
1: don't come into my house. Yeah. And I haven't been inside a taxi in Tehran where the cab driver didn't tell me what he was watching on satellite the night before. Is that right? Yeah. It's really amazing. Uh, Because
0: I wanted to film courting, you know. I wanted to see young people holding hands. It was tough to find anybody even holding hands. Right. But you get a sense that there are places where they hold hands.
1: And, And that happens a lot. Again, anything that any government tries to limit people, find ways to cope with, I mean, unfortunately, we have a big drug problem in Iran, big addiction. People in Iran used to joke with me and say, in, in America, you have to go all the way down to the stores to buy a bottle of wine. All we have to do is to call, and they'll bring it to us at home. So most of the vices are home delivery. Everything is done at home. The parties are at home. It has it's to be home delivery because there's it. no storefront. That's we, correct. we have liquor stores. They That's don't have correct. that.
0: That's correct. So it's home delivery. So you got these little businessmen with their motorcycles that are delivering fun stuff for people. private vices.
1: everything, Yeah, music. Hmm. You know, I
0: I found it interesting that in Iran, you've got a revolutionary government, which is not imposing an economic ideology on its people like the Soviet Union did, but it's imposing a religious ideology on its people. And the irony is, I thought the top-down dictates to be religious were actually not very effective. I've been in other Muslim countries that are secular Western governments where I felt the people's faith was stronger and more obvious on the streets. Yes. What was your take on that when we were in Iran?
1: I, I think Iran over the years has become less and less spiritual, unfortunately. And every time that I go back, that is something that really stands out to me.
0: Now, how does that relate to the passion they have for their poetry? Does
1: that fill a void spiritually? I think so. You know, when I grew up, I remember we would sit down at the dinner table and someone would recite a poem by Rumi, and if the poem ended... With the, the letter S, somebody would start reciting a poem from Hafez that started with S. And people, off memory, would just go on and on and could read a lot of poetry. And I think that has gone away. Um, That's gone away. Yeah. I think it exists amongst more literate people and more educated people. But I don't think it exists the same way it did amongst young people. And young people all have their iPods and MP3 players. And they're all on the Internet. You know, it's just a different world. I feel
0: sad all of a sudden. I mean, I I thought you were going to say poetry is strong because people are free spirits and the government is turning them off by forcing them to worship God a certain way and everybody's going to the tombs of the poets and reading poetry with their families and inspiring each other to embrace life and appreciate their creator that way. But you're telling me that is wilting also.
1: My impression from talking to young people and again, this is, you know, limited how many people I've talked to, is that is not quite as alive amongst young people as it was when I was growing up.
0: Because I remember when we planned our itinerary, you were adamant about, we've got to go to Sherez and we've got to go to the tombs of the poets where we're going right. to find families sitting there in the tombs together, multi-generational.
1: Right. And despite what I'm saying, if on a weekend you go to the, the Hafiz's tomb, you will see that the place is packed. It's like a park and family mm-hmm. sit. I was there a few years ago, and a father was reciting Hafez to his wife and four children, and it was very much alive, and that still happens. I'm not saying that poetry mm-hmm. has gone away. it's really part of our you it's know, your, heritage. it's, it's in, in your our blood. genes, yes. Yes.
0: Fascinating stuff. To me, to go to Iran and to make friends with Iranians, and I want to stress, we were there long enough to get a fair impression on this, and I never, ever found that I had to hide the fact that I was American. In fact, I would say I've never been in a place where it was more of a plus to be an American. Right. And I had this little game. I never told people where I was from, and everybody, when they saw a tourist, a foreigner, because there's not very many of them, you stick out, they come up to you, and they say, where are you from? And I would never tell them. I would say, where do you think? And they would ask, and they would guess six or eight different countries, and finally they'd give up, and they'd say, where are you from? And I'd say, America. And they would light up, and they'd go, Welcome. And honestly, I never felt any antagonism. And if we were inclined to talk politics, we'd get into talking about our respective presidents and so on. But, uh, me as an American there, perfectly welcome. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm joined by Abdi Sami. Abdi uh, grew up in Iran. He works now in America as a film producer and a photographer. And Abdi was my guide as I traveled through his country producing a one-hour special for public television. It's just great to have Abdi here to give a little um, insight into our experience and hopefully let Americans be inspired to better understand Iran. We have Jean on the phone from Carroll, Ohio. Hi, Jean.
2: Hi. Hi, Rick.
0: Thanks for your call. Do you have a comment or question for Abdi?
2: Well, the only thing is, I'm just wondering how, how it is in Iran for women. I hear a lot of stories, and I want to know, really, what is true?
0: Specifically, what would your concern be, Jean?
2: Well, can they go out and do as they please? I understand they can go into business.
0: So you're not talking about just uh, tourist women. You're talking about the women who have to in live in Iran. In Iran, yes. Ah. Iranians. Because a lot of feminists uh, or women that, that just believe in equality and have a modern approach to roles in society look at Iran, and it just looks like medieval keep the women down.
2: Yeah, I wondered. Today, women are just as political as men, as we can tell in our country. And I wonder if it's the same way in Iran for just the average woman.
0: Good question. What do you think, Abdi?
1: You know, Iran is uh, full of contradictions. Uh, every time I go back to Iran and I see women covered up, at least with a scarf is the least you have to wear, yeah. um, my immediate impression is the same thing. It's not a positive one of women in Iran. But when I sit down and talk to women, that impression often changes very quickly. Before the Islamic Revolution, 20% of the students at the universities in Iran were female. Today, it's over 60%. Oh improvement. Well, let's stress that. So under the Shah,
0: in a Western, secular, very capitalistic system, 20% of the women were in the universities. Today, 30 years after the Khomeini revolution, 60% of the people in the universities are women. That is correct. And do they have professional job prospects just like the men?
1: They do, but I wouldn't say equal job opportunities. But a lot of women also have their own businesses. There are a lot of women who are uh, filmmakers. Some of the more successful filmmakers hmm. from Iran are women. So women are very active. They're very political. They're very intelligent. Very uh, driven. Very sounds. driven.
0: Yes. But you said they don't have the same prospects. Where would they not have the employment prospects?
1: Well, if you, if you're uh, involved in government and you wanted to, you know, work at a ministry, I assume there are some limits. But I really can't draw the line. So probably.
0: In, in sources of big political power. It's a, it's a man's world. Yep, it would be harder for women. That's my assumption. Yes. <laughs> much yeah. harder. All right. And when you think about a woman's role in, you know, a good, good example, Gene, I, I thought right off the bat there's a car for women on the subways and women sit on the back of the bus, on the, on the buses. They told me that the women are not required to sit in the women's car. It's a refuge if they want to be away from the men men can't go there but women and children it's their place to go and I saw a lot of women in the men's car but I saw a lot of women choosing to sit in the women's car and somebody told me maybe women in the New York subway system wish they had a car where they could <laughs> sit comfortably <laughs> without men bothering them. <laughs> well, they would
2: be them. more comfortable without. Yeah,
0: so I mean mm-hmm. it's a it's a different approach to respect for women yeah. but I found just constantly people were relating it to they want women's bodies to be respected they don't want women to be part of advertising Consequently, women don't show the shape of their body on the streets. Well, I
2: agree with that at times.
0: You know, and it's a different approach to it, but uh, other countries have done the same thing, and and there's a crassness about our approach to women that way Mm -hmm. that they think they have uh, risen above. Now, you go into the domestic scene. We tried it, but as soon as we took our camera into somebody's home, it was no longer a domestic scene. It was a public scene because our camera was there, so we didn't get the straight shot. Abdi, you've been in a casual domestic scene. How does a woman's situation change in their own domestic world as opposed to out in public?
1: Well, it depends on the family and it depends on if they're religious or not. And if they're not and they're liberal, everybody who's in is dressed as well and men and women mix when they talk and everybody laughs. It's just it's a different energy. It's just a different energy. There's a sense of more relaxed. uh, Yeah. And they can let go. Fascinating.
2: And, you know, the Iranian women are beautiful women.
0: You're telling me. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, all I got to see was their faces. And, and, I know, but they
2: are. They're gorgeous. The eyes, gorgeous eyes. I've right. never
0: been so um, struck by eye contact mm-hmm. anywhere I've been. And I just, I'm a people watcher, you know, uh-huh. men or women. I just love watching people when I'm out I on the too. streets. <laughs> and in Iran, it was so funny for me because there's all these beautiful women who are, you know, they know how to kind of flaunt what they've got, even when they're wearing this, uh, what do you call it, the, uh, the hijab. Hajab. The chador is the, the scarf, right?
1: The, the chador is the long black veil.
0: Okay, the long... What is the other... The hijab
1: the Hijab means a modest covering. It could be any of...
0: Because my understanding is you shouldn't show off the shape of your body in public, right. and you shouldn't show your hair. And women, they had like a little radar about the camera. Whenever the camera was within 20 or 30 meters, suddenly they'd pull their scarves more over their hair. Right. Even, I mean if, even if they couldn't see us, they, they could smell our camera. it was hard to get them looking sexy on camera. But (laughs) when we did, they had a little tuft of hair on their forehead, which was very artfully done. And I've never seen as many... I think statistically, everybody says this, there's more nose jobs per capita in Iran than anywhere. You know, women who have the money get their nose done so it looks just right, and boy, their faces are great, and their eye contact (laughs) just nails you. Well, they are beautiful. So I guess the point is, they can be appealing visually, even within their... Moral system
1: oh, without,
2: without showing
1: that is correct that. and and they love to dress up <laughs> now when I got to Paris
0: after that, and you see these women with tattooed breasts and wearing lingerie yeah. for a top and is just with a really tight clothing, it was really a culture shock for me. My eyes were like like they had been having a famine for a long time, and <laughs> I, I just <laughs> i mean it was a weird thing psychologically to see how i Physically responded to this Western sort of, uh, <laughs> of um, display of, of visual, uh, exciting, uh, you know, sexuality. But when I was in Iran, it was just a whole different level. It's like the volume was turned down, and in a way, maybe that lets the volume go up higher in certain times. I don't know. You
2: appreciate what you see.
0: You sure do. Mm-hmm. It's a different, it, and that's well, the fun about travel without judging it.
2: I think so. You, you know, my daughter lived in Saudi Arabia. Well, this has been twenty-five years ago, for a few years. And she wasn't allowed to go out herself at that time. And she had to be completely covered also. But she would talk about going to the bazaars and the shops and seeing the women that were all covered buying all of the gold jewelry.
0: Now, but let's talk about the women in Saudi Arabia. Abdi, what's your take on the role of women in Saudi Arabia compared to women in Iran?
1: I think there's a vast difference, really, between the two countries and women in terms of their ability to drive and vote and participate in, you know... I'm it's,
2: not... it's changed some, though, I think, yes. as yeah. from, as I said, 25 years ago.
0: I think it's fair to say that women are in a better um, position in regards to those things in Iran absolutely, yes. than in Saudi Arabia. Than in
1: Saudi, yes. probably
0: so. All right. Jean, thanks so much for your call.
2: Well, you're always good talking with you. Ah, it's, it's just you. fun
0: to be exploring things we don't know much about, and I love to be steep on the learning curve. Thanks. Okay, bye now. Bye-bye. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Abdi Sami, who accompanied me on a two-week film shoot in Iran recently, and today we're just sharing some of the lessons we've learned. Abdi, when I was in Iran, it occurred to me, because I was really into the Soviet Union and all this sort of uh, taking power and and, and keeping the people down and everything, and I just have an appetite for understanding how people can take other people's freedom away. And in Iran, clearly, they've traded democracy away to have their values put on them by a theocracy. In the Soviet Union, there was always these two-bit little power mongers, these guys who would turn their cousin in just to stay in power, and they were apparatchniks. They would sell their soul just to be part of the system and succeed within those guidelines. And I saw that when I did official things in Iran with the mosques and with the government. I saw people who dressed like Ahmadinejad. They just played the role perfect. They would do anything to conform and, and kiss up to that system. That was something that, that really struck me. And I wondered, were these people motivated by their faith and their commitment to the revolution of values? Did you notice I mean, that, though, how the people looked like Ahmadinejad, who were the administrators of the big mosque?
1: You know, when I stay at the Hilton in Tehran, where we stayed, I just feel like this is the ruling class. It just, they stand out.
0: The ruling class. In the Absolutely. Soviet Union, you had a ruling class that were just yeah. kiss-ups to the system. Yeah. and yeah. And you had the people who would sell their job security, sell their position, their opportunity to have their children get a good university in order to be free spirits. I think Americans realize that we can learn a lot about Iran. It's a country of 70 Mm. million people motivated by a love of their children and a love of uh, their culture, which goes back uh, a millennia before Islam came. It's a complicated world. Now when we're talking about this um revolution of values and the theocracy of course we think of Ayatollah Khomeini and I grew up with Khomeini and he was a scary guy I mean he was just a fanatic and the way we we learned to see him was one way and then I spent a couple of weeks in Iran and everywhere I went I saw him as something different I saw him as a sage approachable loving spiritual leader and that was really underlined when we went to his tomb and I saw how casual it was at the tomb What's your take on Khomeini these days? What what position does he have in the eyes of the people?
1: I think it depends on the people and class of people. I think it varies a lot, but I think he's seen as, by many, as a sage. He's become part of the mythology of the revolution more than anything else. So Khomeini, he's
0: sort of a myth now. He's an epic figure in the local religion, and it's a theocracy, so you need to have some big modern-day prophets. He provides that. He's the spiritual supreme... Actually, in Iran, there's two sources of power, right? There's the political president and then the spiritual supreme leader. Correct. Who's more powerful?
1: The spiritual leader is so, more powerful.
0: So Khomeini's successor is a guy named Khomeini? Khomeini, yes. Khomeini, so it's a little confusing, but yes. the sort of the after John Paul, you got Pope Benedict, something right. like that. You know, great Catholic leader, but it's not John Paul II. Is it similar in Iran? You had Khomeini and then this new guy, Khomeini? Yeah,
1: I think that would be a good parallel.
0: There's no question, though, that the successor to Khomeini, the spiritual leader, Khomeini, he can fire Ahmadinejad if he wants to.
1: He, he Basically, yes, he really has control over the armed forces and the police and the whole government. And you more hear, than you hear
0: Ahmadinejad president. spouting off. You don't hear Khomeini spouting off.
1: No, that's correct. Why is that? That's correct. I think part of that is because Ahmadinejad knows how to talk to the base, and that's what he's trying to do, like when John McCain talks to his base here.
0: Okay. So it really is, there's political dynamics at work here. Yes.
1: So I would bet
0: Khomeini and this whole religious revolution, its base would Mm -hmm. be the less educated, more rural people, small-town people Mm -hmm. who might be afraid of the West. And the people in the big cities are not so afraid of the West because they want to engage the West. Is that fair or is that...
1: I think that's... Pretty fair assumption, yes. Of
0: course, it's dangerous to generalize because it's the same thing in our country. You can't generalize. There's all sorts of progressive people in Utah and there's all sorts of conservative people in Berkeley.
1: Already you're including or excluding millions of people.
0: Right. But it is interesting that politicians do speak to their base.
1: Yes, yes.
0: Effectively. (laughs) (laughs) I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're discussing Iran with Abdi Sami. So you're tuned in to Persian Prince Radio... We're learning about a country that's been living with an American embargo for about 30 years. We're talking about a country that has big posters up in its mosques that say death to Israel. We're learning about a country where a lot of women have nose jobs. We're traveling in Iran. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm joined by Abdi Sami. Abdi is an Iranian American. Grew up in Iran. Now he's a photographer and a filmmaker here in the United States. And we're talking about a country that I learned so much about in my recent filming adventure there. Abdi, it is very tough for Americans to deal with the place of women in Iran. We've talked about that a little bit. You can sort of justify it if it's their definition of respect and modesty provided to women by men. Uh, You know, you got the same thing in the Bible. If it's taken in a certain way, it's women are to stand back and let the men take care of them, and it's okay as long as the men respect the women and it's equal and not abused or whatever. Uh, you know, you can talk, you can sort of get around that, but it's very tough to get around the death to Israel signs and death to America. We were just there together. We saw a lot of that. What were your thoughts when we saw those signs?
1: You know, I was in Iran when, a year after the revolution happened, and those were the big mottos of the revolution, and I think they've just been carried forward Throughout the years, sometimes I wonder if how much the public really pays attention to them, how much of that is on the walls and how much of that is part of a conversation going on in Iran.
0: Soviet Union had all sorts of slogans all around the workers, you know, it was all whistle while you work, everything for the proletariat, this kind of thing, and you're saying the, what, the revolution's back in 1979,
1: 78? Right, 79. So you were there right after that, and this was
0: a big deal. I know the revolution was radicalized by a bunch of uh, radical students taking all the hostages at the American embassy. Right. Some people say their agenda was to make sure that moderates didn't run the revolution, but extremists did.
1: Yes. There are a lot of different versions of that. Were they Uh, effective in doing that, do you think? I think they were effective for their aims, for what they were trying to accomplish. I also have to say that the attitude of our administration in the U.S. in the past eight years hasn't really helped (laughs) to improve the relations. (laughs) You know, there is a lot of, I I think there's a lot of pride and a lot of face-saving, and we've got to remember
0: that a politician needs to shore up his uh, base, right? right? And if uh, one of our politicians wants to shore up their base, they'll say, bomb them to oblivion if they attack Israel, or they'll sing, bomb, 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 Iran, or they'll label them part of the axis of evil. And their base says, right on, right on. Now, flip it over, and you got the country that is uh, having disagreements with our power, and he's got a base. Ahmadinejad's got a base. Right. And when he says, death to America... I don't think the highly educated people in the city say, yeah, death to Israel, too. I think they're talking to the less educated, more conservative, more fearful people well, in the countryside. Is that right?
1: Yeah, he's talking to that base, and he's mobilizing that base and it's against effective. the U.S., and it's effective, as it's been here for the past eight years.
0: But the funny thing is, I'm sitting there, I'm walking down the street under these six-story-tall banners of the American flag, and the American flag is painted by red and white bombs dropping to make those stripes, and the 50 stars are 50 skulls. Right. I mean, this is gripping yeah. stuff. I right. love political graffiti, by the way, but it's just poignant to be at the, at the receiving end of all that. Mm-hmm. But like you said, I think it's sort of a noisy wallpaper. And mm-hmm. I saw the people walking under those murals and mm-hmm. they just kind of like, life goes on and they've got their MP3 players and they've got their jobs and they've got their satellite dishes and they've mm-hmm. got a president who is elected by about, what, 50%? percent hmm about. Do you have any hope for relations between America and
1: Iran? I always have hope. Uh, what gave It you hope? takes a lot of patience. Well, th- what gave me hope when I went to Iran the most was that this time I got a chance to meet with a bunch of young artists, filmmakers in their early 30s who were all born just a couple of years before the revolution. I met a bunch of musicians. Um, I was taken by a bunch of musicians to a place called the House of Artists, which uh, is basically a place where they have plays, galleries, paintings, uh, music, they play music. And I just saw that in the midst of this country where we have a lot of limitations, these young people are working. They're making films. They're writing music. They're excited, and they don't let anything to stop them, and they move forward. Wow. And being with them was so energizing to me. So there's a resilience of spirit.
0: Which is really, really amazing. Now, these are not people Uh, that grew up during free times under the Shah and then had to deal with the revolution. The revolution was 30 years ago. A lot of these people... Grew up
1: reading textbooks Khomeini and his gang wrote. Yeah. And yet they're so worldly. They know so much about the US international politics thanks to the Internet. They just seem so connected to the world. And there are some of them who come to the US or go to Europe and perform at clubs and play their music and go back to Iran.
0: Well a lot of Americans think if they were just free to leave, everybody would leave Iran. Do you think people I mean I'm sure a lot of people would leave Iran.
1: I think a lot of people would, and I think a lot of people, if there was more freedom, would go back to Iran, And, and I think a lot of people are happy to stay there. You
0: know, I'm impressed by how Iran could shut off the Internet more, but Iran is one of the most lively Internet societies in the world.
1: Yes, I would say so. Iran is very connected to the world. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm joined by Abdi Sami.
0: Abdi uh, grew up in Iran. He works now in America as a film producer and a photographer. And Abdi was my guide as I traveled through his country producing a one-hour special for public television.
1: Yeah. 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 America. Yeah. No, yeah.
0: <laughs> it's true. Yes. It's actually true. We've got Les on the phone in Miami, Florida. Hi, Les. Hi, Rick. How are you? Great. Thanks for your call. Got any comments here on our discussion?
3: Uh, It's very interesting to hear a discussion like this, which I really haven't heard anywhere for maybe the last 30 years. Uh, I also want to mention how much I enjoyed your very informative blog entries about your trip over there. Uh, I can't say we've seen very much in the United States about traveling in Iran since Jimmy Carter was president.
0: You know, let's thank you. I forgot all about that. Where's my self-promoting hat? i got to remind people that I was, had so much fun writing over there, and it's with photographs and all my entries on my blog at ricksteves.com. We'll make sure that that's easy to find on our website if people want to read more about our experience in Iran.
3: But in particular, because uh, you piqued our interest in traveling in Iran for the first time in so long, I wanted to know what type of travel documents are necessary for Americans to travel to Iran, and what's really the best and most expedient way of getting them?
0: Well, boy, it's complicated because we don't have an embassy in our country. So you have to go to the uh, Pakistan, what is the
1: Iranian interest section at the Pakistani embassy in Washington, D.C.
0: Now, in preparation, less for this interview, I just did that. And uh, you can get the visa brochure applications and so on. You can go onto the web. And for Americans, we've got to remember there's a lot of uh, face-saving, proud tit-for-tat. And Americans are are treated a little differently than Europeans when they want to go to Iran. But they're still welcome. And when I was doing the permissions for our film shoot, they were motivated by wanting to get press so that more Americans would travel to Iran. It's part of their economy, like any other country. They want to stoke their tourism. I don't think they're doing a very good job of it, but you can certainly go there if you've got the uh, fortitude to go through the hoops and the money to take a tour. Realistically, for an American, you need to take a tour and there's lots of special kind of tours that take people to Iran. You could take an American tour to Iran, or I would imagine you could even go on the web and book onto a tour from another English-speaking country and go to Iran. I'll tell you one thing. The Lonely Planet guidebook to Iran is excellent. It just came out in a new edition, and my friends at Lonely Planet tell me it sells very well. Americans are always amazed that there's a guidebook to Cuba or Iran or something like that because we think we're the only travelers in the world sometimes. (laughs) But we're 4% of this planet, and there's more people than ever traveling using publications like Lonely Planet and the Internet and so on uh, to go to these places. So that was a fun thing for me was to go to Iran and realize, hey, this is scary and exciting for me, but my Australian friends that I met there, it was just another country as they travel around the world.
3: Does it work similarly when you go to Russia and if you engage a tour company, they do the red tape-type work for you, or do you still have to go through that yourself? No,
0: exactly. It's the same. To me, it's perfectly parallel to Russia, even today, I guess. And it's um, they just want to make sure they know where you are and you're not going to get in trouble. I mean, there's reasons they want to keep an eye on you, and I think there are legitimate reasons, With given what's going on these days. And uh, I don't think it's a bad thing to take, a if, it's a if it's a good tour, to take a tour of Iran. And what was impressive to me in Abdi was you know, we had a couple of weeks there, and you can see the major exciting sights of Iran in a, in a good 10-day or two-week tour. I mean, there's a handful of great sights, and those are the ones that show up on all the tour brochures. Those are the ones that have the tourist infrastructure, and those are the ones that uh, an American can travel comfortably. And then for the more adventurous spirits, of course, you can get off the beaten path. Some of my favorite moments were just pulling off the freeway We pulled off the fruit, we found this caravan sarai, we dropped into a a bakery and saw the whole community coming in to get their fresh-baked bread, and then we walked out into a barley field where there was an old shepherd, he looked like somebody right out of the Bible, with a sling just like David used to slay Goliath. And he was whipping off rocks there to keep the birds off of his barley, and he had a scarecrow in the middle of his field who was dressed up like uh, in very modest way. Even their <laughs> scarecrows have to be veiled and have their heads covered so they're not too voluptuous, you know. Uh, but I just thought there's fascinating opportunities to see how this country is uh, going through another millennium. And uh, one thing that really struck me was the country is so rich in history and heritage, and it goes back long before they became Muslim. Uh, it's one thing you, you do find is everybody makes a pilgrimage to Persepolis, and that's where a lot of Iranians go to sort of reconnect with their cultural roots, I think. Think.
3: Now, when you're filling out the travel documents, is one of the questions, what religion are you? And if you check the wrong box, you don't get in.
0: As far as I know, you can't be or you shouldn't be Baha'i. Baha'i is the one outlawed religion because their prophet is after Muhammad. I mean, you're not going to get in government or any sort of great positions of authority unless you're not only a Muslim but a practicing. Shiite Muslim, right? That is correct. But uh, a Christian, uh, Zoroastrian, Jew, whatever, you can live, by all accounts that I've heard, yes. comfortably in Iran. Uh, openly, you can. Re- we saw lots of churches when we were in Iran. But Bahais are outlawed because, th- according to the Muslims, Muhammad was the last prophet, and Bahá'u'lláh, the prophet of Bahais, just like Jesus is Christians' prophet, and uh, Muhammad was the Muslims' prophet. He's the only guy that came after. Muhammad, he came in the 1800s, I believe. So that's why the Baha'is, and it's a horrible thing, Baha'is are getting brutalized in that country, and if you're Baha'i, you just stay out of there as far as I'm concerned. But uh, you can't have been to Israel on your passport as far as I know, and you don't want to be a Baha'i. Otherwise, you just tell them you're, you're a tourist, and it's, it's pretty straightforward. Is that, is that right, Abdi? That is correct.
3: So if you want to combine it with a trip to Israel, you should go to Israel afterwards.
0: Or get two passports. I told my country that I've got a passport with an Israeli stamp on it, and I want to go to Iran, and I bought a second passport. I didn't know you could do that. It was pretty straightforward. Yes, you can do that, too. But Israel is pretty good about that, too. Israel understands the reality, and they'll stamp a piece of paper to put in your passport so you can hide the fact that you've been in Israel.
3: That's very interesting. What would you say would be the best time to go if you had a choice?
0: Well, we went in the off-season less, so it was comfortable for us. You know, in the spring and the fall, it's going to be very comfortable weather. Abdi, what's your take on weather? Yes,
1: I would say uh, May is the best time and October. So it's like Italy or something. Yeah. You,
0: you can imagine the curve. It's just too hot yeah. and dusty in the summer. Yeah. I thought an interesting thing when I was in Iran was uh, dust concerns. Everything was dusty. It wasn't as hot, but it was really dusty. It's, a, it's a quite a dusty countryside. Of course, Tehran is... A, greater Tehran is 14 million people, and you've got a lot of just smog there. And, of course, we have a lot of economic power when we're in Iran. I mean, you can live very cheap, and if you want to spend what you spend in Europe, you live like a king in Iran.
1: Yes,
3: And how how prepared are they in terms of infrastructure for tourists? I know most places we go there's tourist information offices and help all over the place and bilingual signs and things like that. I imagine it's a little bit different in Iran.
1: Well, it depends on what country you're comparing it to. But Tehran, Esfahan, Shiraz, uh, Persepolis, Yaz, they're really set up for the tourists. When you go there in May or October, that's the high tourist season. Half of the hotels are packed with European tourists. And everybody asks me, where were the Americans? I think it's very easy to travel there if you're going to those larger cities.
0: When I show my slides, a lot of my friends are struck by how the signs are in English and it's just the international language of travel. You're going to have your signs in Farsi, and then you're going to have your signs in English. I think that the tourist infrastructure is very thin in Iran because relative to any other Western country, there's not many tourists there. That's why I think you should take a tour of Iran, frankly, and then skip out of things. For me, some of the most interesting moments were just walking through the malls. I like to see teenagers being naughty. And you can go to our malls and see that, or you can go to the malls in any city in Iran and just watch and see how the kids uh, like to get away from their parents. Stuff like that. Go down to the riverbank and see families with a blanket and a little Bunsen burner having a picnic. Be out strolling the main drag where you find everybody is out making the scene. I I don't think you want to go to Iran with a checklist of important mosques to visit. I think you want to go to Iran and just immerse yourself in that culture and see how people are living today. And I've never been so approachable anywhere I'll tell you as in Iran when I wanted to get conversation all I did was get eye contact say hello and I'm talking to that person and if they're young and educated I'm talking in English
1: mm-hmm.
3: Well, I'm very interested in looking forward to the new additions to your list of backdoors, because I don't (laughs) think there were any from Iran at this point.
0: Les, I think that's sort of one of the ultimate backdoors as far as my travel experience goes. I'll remind people again, go to ricksteves.com and check out my uh, blog on Iran. It was so much fun to write on this and report on this, in part because this is just a slam dunk for a travel writer, to find a place that Americans don't understand, find a place that I think is being used in a a fear-mongering kind of way politically in our country, acknowledge there are serious problems. I mean, I'm not saying I'm in favor of their policies or any of their nonsense about gay people or Holocaust or their uh, antagonism towards Israel, or anything like that. But I'm saying we can be constructive. And when you go there as an individual, you find there are 70 million people in Iran and they don't get out of bed wanting to kill America. That's one thing I can promise you.
3: Well, that's, that's pretty much what we see from the media, so it's a bit refreshing to get a different perspective.
0: Thank goodness for public broadcasting. We can talk about it right here on the airwaves. You wouldn't have this information anywhere else because you'd be offending advertisers. Thanks, Les, for your call. Thank you. Happy travels. Bye. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been speaking with my friend Abdi Sami. I didn't even know Abdi a year ago, and Abdi joined us on our adventure through Iran, and he's just one more example about how it really makes a lot of sense to get to know people and then make your own opinion on them, rather than letting uh, somebody else tell you how you should think about another society. Abdi, you mentioned in your writing that when you went to Iran, you were hoping to create understanding between America and Iran and and to be an instrument of peace, and you ended up finding out that you had your own peace that you needed to make with Iran. What did you mean by that?
1: Well, it's very complicated, and not so very complicated. We have our own peace to make always with where we come from, with our own families, and being here... And going back to Iran with you, there was this sense of excitement of being a peace emissary and trying to bring the two people together. And when I went to Iran, especially since I got there two weeks ahead of you and I had time to research and look into things and trying to look uh, through your eyes and what you want to see and so forth, things started popping up, things that I wish were different in Iran that I started having conflicts with and I had to make peace with.
0: What were some of those conflicts?
1: Well, I would like to see the young people to be more present. I would like to see the atmosphere at the universities to be different than what it is. And I would like people to feel that they're allowed to be more lively in public and to live their lives fully in public and not in their private homes. You know, that's one thing. When you come back to
0: the United States, you're more determined than ever to value and defend our civil liberties. This is something we've got in our country that is something that's really a treasure. And to see a world where you have to live two different lives, one in public and one behind the closed doors of your home, it's an unfortunate reality, isn't it? Yes. And when we go to these countries, we always have our preconditions, and we always hope to find a certain thing. But you need to travel with an open mind. You need to travel with the uh, intention of meeting people and building understanding. And to realize that, bottom line, I think people just want to live well and raise their kids in a way that will give them fulfilling lives. It's valuable to go to a place like Iran. It's valuable to go to a country that that might be labeled as an enemy. It's valuable for us to understand that don't let somebody tell you it's dangerous to go there if it's not dangerous. And when I went to Iran, the last thing on my mind was the danger of it. The biggest danger is that we don't go to Iran and we let other people tell us what to think about it. That is correct. Abdi, if our listeners and I could understand Farsi right now, what would you
1: say to us? Man, omidvaram kishumava and what does that mean that i
0: hope
1: that you and everybody who's listening to us will help us to be peacemakers and make peace between iran and the u.s
0: and you the last couple of words inshallah inshallah and what god that?
1: willing if god
0: wills it I hope that you're speaking, and I know you're speaking, not just to me, but to everybody who's listening. Inshallah. Inshallah. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. You'll find more online, including listener feedback and archived audio on demand. It's in the radio section of our website, ricksteves.com. Join us again next time for Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is made possible in part by American Airlines, with 4,000 flights to 250 cities in 40 countries around the world every day. It's easy to book your next flight at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly. hafez. Bye-bye.
1: Bye-bye. Okay.